Lord, we ask that you would speak to us where we are. As we've heard the theme this morning, you are here, you are near. You are in our midst. We ask that you just continue to speak to our hearts. Help us to know how to love you and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Help us to know your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, happy Palm Sunday. Today we celebrate and remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a young donkey as the people worshiped God on this extraordinary day by waving palm branches and proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it wasn't just as they lined up in the streets, and it wasn't just this remarkable and uncommon day that they were worshiping. Their worship had been going on before this event and would go on after it. The shouting and rejoicing in this particular moment was just one aspect of their ongoing day-to-day worship. That is because all of life is an act of worship. All of life is an act of worship. That is all that you do, every decision that you make and the motivations from which you act are either acts of worship toward God or toward something else. What we do in public and in secret, alone or with others, big or small, are ultimately done from the motive of, out of an allegiance either to God in Christ, or something else. You don't decide when to worship. You are worshiping. Every moment of the day, you are pouring out your life for something or someone. You don't choose to worship. You simply decide who and how you are worshiping. We are either doing what we do as to Christ or not, either for him, in spite of him, or against him. Those last two things are the same. All of life is an act of worship. So from what motivations do we do what we do in our lives? You know, as we've been talking about standing firm and have build excitement around this concept, I, I, I think the tendency is for us to think about standing firm in some big, grandiose fashion, waving our banner of worshiping Christ in the face of the government that hates him, like those who waved those palm branches in the face of the government. I remember as a young Christian frequently ruminating on the idea of taking a bullet for Christ. You guys ever do that? In other words, putting myself in the place of the ancient Christians who were given the ultimatum of confessing Caesar is Lord or standing firm in the arena with the lions. Placing myself in the situation of persecuted Christians throughout the centuries who are told renounce Christ or die. And I envisioned myself standing firm and boldly proclaiming Jesus is the Lord. Any of y'all ever do that? Bitch dead. Now, I don't know about you, 
but how many times have I had to face that circumstance? Never. Such a circumstance is rather extraordinary, and 0.0001% of Christians will ever have to face something that extraordinary. You know, we are called to stand firm, to walk with Christ in average everyday life as well. In our day-to-day, ordinary, mundane lives. You see, standing firm most often entails simply doing the right thing moment by moment in the nine to five and at home. Treating someone the right way, acting in love and integrity this moment, and then the next moment, and then the next moment, when few people are looking and no persecution is present. Where the things at stake are our relationships with people we see every day and the honor and glory Christ has brought through them. Standing firm for you and me means living moment by moment as to Christ. Toward Christ as an act of worship and service and love to him. As Paul says in verses 6 through 8 of this morning's passage, we are to live not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. The passage we find ourselves in this morning is all about this. It's about living unto Christ, acting and behaving as to Christ in normal humdrum everyday life, normal relationships. We are in Ephesians chapter six, verse one. If you want to open there, we will read. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. How many of you are familiar with this passage? At least the first four verses of it. I bet just about every single parent raised their hands, at least in their minds. And everybody raised their hand who was familiar with this passage. Interaction, people, interaction. One, two, well done, good job. This is one of the most recognized passages in the whole of the Bible. 
And it's a fair bet that if you have children, it's a staple in your home. <laughs> you, your spouse, and if your children are old enough, might have already memorized it, huh? You probably have books on your shelves that contain this verse or are all about this verse. It is one of the three most beloved passages on parenting in all of scripture. Yet the focus of this passage, the main theme or teaching of Paul here is much bigger than parenting or the workplace. It's about the state of heart, the disposition and motivation from which these roles and relationships ought to be lived. It's about living out these roles and relationships as to Christ from the heart, as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service. Did you from the heart? From the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. This passage is about heart conditions. Indeed, this emphasis on our motivation permeates this whole section, beginning all the way back in 521. There, we are told, give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, whatever you do, even in how you relate to one another, do it out of reverence for Christ. That is as an act of worship to the Lord. Is this making sense? Your actions towards others are an act of either reverence or irreverence to Christ. Mm. It's evident in the life of David, you know, when he had that adulterous affair and murdered someone. And David said to the Lord against you, you only have I sinned. All of our actions and interactions arise out of our devotion to the Lord. This concept permeates this whole section. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In the same way, husbands, children, obey in the Lord. Fathers, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, as you would Christ. Masters, do the same. And the section closes with knowing that he who is both their Lord and yours is in heaven. He's speaking to the motivations here, guys. Why do you do what you do? In whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. That is the message of this passage. Do it as to Christ. I almost wanted to do one of those little acronyms, you know, A2C. So write that down, A2C. I, I, I did A2J earlier, but I was like, no, that's addicted to Jesus. You guys saw me post that on Facebook. Right? Me and my boys are addicted to him. Praise him. In a parallel passage of this letter um, that he wrote to the church of Colossae, Paul exhorts, in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
You are serving the Lord Christ. To the church at Corinth, he writes, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, make all of life an act of worship toward God. All of life is an act of worship. It's just who it's going to be toward. For what reasons? Live as to Christ in thankfulness for what he has done for you. Out of awe and reverence for who he is. Out of allegiance and devotion for who he is to you. As a bondservant of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service to the Lord. Why would I want to live out my moment-by-moment existence as to Christ? As a bondservant of Christ. Because of everything that Paul has already been writing and has written in this letter to the church of Ephesus. Because of the truth that although you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked and were by nature a child of wrath, but God, that's why. BG, there's our second acronym, BG. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's why. He raised us up with Christ. Why live moment by moment for Christ? Because we are alive in Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us. Because of the immeasurable riches of God's grace for us. That's why. So after Paul says that, he says, I therefore, because of this good stuff, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which you have been called. Here in the latter half of chapter five and the beginning of six, we're in the midst of Paul's instructions as to what walking in a manner worthy looks like. What it looks like to live as to Christ in the area of our relationships. He mentions three, the husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, and the master-bond-servant or employee-employer relationship. Bill covered the husband-wife relationship beautifully two weeks ago. A lot of that section informs much of what is going on here in chapter 6. So we'll be going back and forth into 5 as well as a part of this. So why does Paul stop with just these three relationships and why of all the people and relationships that he could have chosen, did he choose these? It's a good question because these examples most thoroughly depict the points he is making through the points of similarity in these relationships. These relationships have similar characteristics. And so Paul is using these three to point those out because of those similarities. It is what these examples have in common that Paul is pointing us to for our understanding and application. So the first similarity is that these are the predominant contexts of life. 
Where do people spend most of their time and what relationships are the most common and normative? With whom do we spend the lion's share of our time and interact with the most? For the majority of society, it is with our family and coworkers. Everybody say, yeah, yeah. With the most of our time and energy being spent at home or on the job. Makes sense, doesn't it? One of the reasons Paul uses these three examples is because the vast majority of people were in one or more of these roles and relationships. Not all were married. Not all had or were children. Not all were employed. But chances are that just about everyone reading his letter was at least one of these things. Paul wasn't trying to be exhaustive here in identifying each particular person, role, or relationship. If he had, it would have been a much longer letter and a much longer Bible. But he was using these three examples to be representative of almost all people in life contexts. Let me give you an example. Everybody stand up for me, if you can, please. Now, Everyone who is a child or is living under their parents' roof, go ahead and sit down. Good. Everyone who has a child, young or old, go ahead and sit down. Now, those of you who are still standing, wow, we got rid of just about everybody, didn't we? Um, Everyone who has a job, has had a job, or is looking for a job, go ahead and sit down. I don't even need to do the last one, do I? As you can see, these three contexts represented the normal or typical confines and conditions of ordinary, everyday life for everybody. It did. That's the point. It's speaking to everyone in these contexts. Through these three examples, Paul is bringing forth relational principles for the normal, commonplace, Christian, living, everyday life. He's illustrating how glorifying God most commonly takes place in the routine ordinary events and circumstances of life. It is there. Are you guys getting bored with this? I hope so. Because that's the point. In the normal, usual events and relationships that we most often exercise true devotion and worship to Christ, it is there. That is where we live as to Christ. It's at those times and in those places that we most often stand firm. Most often can do the will of God. The most frequent way we can render service to the Lord is in how we relate to the average Joe. To your spouse, to your parent, to your child, to your employee, employer, the people that you are over at work and the people that you are under at work. How you interact and relate to and with 
these people is simultaneously an interaction with Christ. Do you hear that? Your earthly interactions with others are also spiritual interactions with Christ. The way you relate to them is in fact a way you are relating to him. Hmm. What is interesting is that these three relationships also have another major point of commonality. Each clearly contains what Bill called the principle of headship. Each relationship has a head or an authority and a subordinate. And it appears that how these two roles relate to one another is a major facet, a major way that we can both reflect the wisdom of God and honor him in our daily lives by this authority-subordinate relationship. How can we live as to Christ in our relationships? This is a major way. This is what Paul is saying. How those who fill these roles interact as well as behave personally displays both the glory and wisdom of God on this earthly level. And as we learned two weeks ago from Bill, it reflects the relationship of Christ and his church. We saw, as Bill pointed out, how the relationship of a husband and wife illustrates that relationship of Christ and the church. He showed us how each spouse has particular responsibilities within this God-ordained institution and relationship called marriage. And that when both participants fulfill in these roles and relationships that God designed, that the Lord is glorified by each of those individuals as well as that marriage. That's why the picture of the two arrows coming together, pointing in a direction. When this is done, when those people within those relationships, and we have two other relationships, remember, when they work together, when they do that, it pictures Christ in the church, the head becoming a picture of Christ and the subordinate becoming a picture of the church. It's really mind-blowing. Oh, man, I forgot. Do I have a mind? No, I forgot my mind-blowing thing. Dang it. It's mind-blowing. Each is the picture of the other. It's like one of those images that it, that is actually two pictures. You guys know those images? Which one do you see? Do you guys see the vase or the two faces? The old woman or the young woman? The old man or the two people on the sunny day? You got two things. Each picture's details form the details of the other picture, don't they? The one illuminates and informs the other and vice versa. And so you have the earthly authority. And when that earthly authority walks in the discipline and instruction of the Lord as a biblical godly authority, that authority becomes a shadow, a picture, a display of the glorious ultimate authority who is Christ himself. The nearer that earthly authority walks to the biblical picture of authority, the more vividly they demonstrate and reflect and display Christ as the head over his church. 
And then if you look on the other side, you have the person and work of Christ who becomes the exemplar of authority. See, Christ informs how that authority should do. And that authority reflects Christ. It's this beautiful picture. It goes round and round. Christ becomes the exemplar for the earthly authority. So the earthly authority knows how to live as a godly earthly authority. And the same is true of the subordinate. The earthly subordinate who walks out the biblical truth of the role and responsibility they have been given as a subordinate becomes a picture of the church and how the church both submits to and depends upon their authority, who is Christ. You seen how this works? And the church's relationship to Christ, her dependence upon and submission to him becomes a picture of what a godly submission should look like to an earthly authority. Each displays the other. So, parents... You display the glory and wisdom of Christ and the beauty of his headship and relationship to the church by being godly authorities after the manner Paul lays out here. The same is true with everyone in a position of authority. The people in these positions represent the true head, which is Christ, And the nearer we walk in conformity to Christ's example and God's instruction, the more we reflect and display Christ himself. And everyone in a position of subordination. You display the glory and wisdom of Christ and the beauty of his headship and relationship to the church by showing godly subordination. Also after the manner Paul lays out here. What is the manner? We're going to get to that. Don't worry. We display the church's dependence upon Christ and submission to him by our dependence upon and submission to those leaders who are meant to represent him to us. Now, there are a few things that need to be said at this point before we continue. First of all, as well known and treasured as this passage is in many a Christian family, and as frequently as it is used to glorify God through godly authority and submission, it is also one of the most mistranslated and twisted passages in the whole of the Bible. It is twisted by the godless to justify all kinds of sinful behavior, from slavery to spiritual, emotional, and even physical abuse in the family. All scripture is God-breathed and, like everything else, is subject to radical misinterpretation. Wherever this passage is addressed or preached, just about every preacher and pastor feels compelled to make sure that people understand what this passage is not saying, as do I, as did Bill last week when he said, so is the husband the tyrant of the home? No! No! Is he the ruler of the home, asked Bill, who can unilaterally bark orders and expect all the servants, his wife and children to cower and obey in fear without question? Of course not. Those were Bill's words. And they're true. Such ridiculous and wicked sentiments are clearly not consistent 
with the characteristics and actions that Paul commends to the husband in the very same passage. You see that? Oh, look, there's all those. That's really small. Maybe it was just to make a point. His description, Paul's description of what the husband is to be like and act like precludes that interpretation. Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, we live in a sinful society, don't we? The wicked authority will merely pluck verses like wives submit to your husbands, children obey your parents, or servants obey your masters out of their context in order to use the word of God as a tool for manipulating and oppressing others. To them, these verses are a weapon for them to aim right at the hearts and minds of those they want to control. Yes, the Bible can be used wrongly as a weapon. If you know or suspect that this is occurring in your home, at your workplace, at this church, or anywhere else for that matter. Please, please, please talk to someone you trust. An elder, a deacon, any man or woman in this church that you trust. If you feel like this is going on, do not endure abuse. Do not endure the evil and wrong and sinful actions of others who are simply trying to justify those actions with a wrong use of the Bible. If they're using the Bible as something to pound you down, that is not the right way. That is not what the Bible is for. Seek someone out, please. With that said, I want to set some clear boundaries for us in this passage. They might sound familiar to some of you, but maybe not all of you. So I want to give them anyway. Number one, obedience and submission are always bounded by scriptural truth. Obedience and submission are always bounded by scriptural truth. If an authority is telling you to violate something clearly taught in the word of God, they are not to be obeyed. If they are demanding of you something that God forbids in his word, you must refuse. The Christian's first allegiance is to God. When anyone commands anything of you that is contrary to the word and will of God, they ask too much. You must refuse to obey. You must refuse to submit if this is going on. And if they are demanding that you violate your conscience, the same holds true. Don't do it. Number two, these instructions relate to roles, positions, and functions. As Bill said, it has nothing to do with the value or even the importance of things. These instructions are about an arrangement of things or people set in order or in sequence within a system so that things in that system operate in an efficient and orderly way. 
so that God is glorified in that system. It's a beautiful thing. God designed things in a beautiful way to reflect his glory. But it's God's economy. And in God's economy, no person in the position of authority is of any greater value or dignity or importance than a person in the position of subordination. In God's economy, no person in the position of authority is of any greater value or dignity or importance than a person in the position of subordination. People simply occupy different positions and fulfill different functions, but not, but are not of any different worth. Paul couldn't have been clearer about it. He closes this entire section with the pronouncement, there is no partiality with God. This is in relation to God's treatment and estimation of people, regardless of role. We are all created in the image of God, imago Dei. You all have the image of God. And we are all made alive in Christ in the same way. You remember that sermon? Chapter 3, all who are in Christ Jesus are what? Equal heirs, equal members of his body, and equal partners and partakers of God's covenant promises. With the gospel, there is no room for prejudice, discrimination, favoritism, or superiority. There is no biblical justification for showing partiality based upon nationality, ethnicity, gender, disability, economic or class distinction, nor role or position. That was point number two. Point made? All right, thank you. If it wasn't, come see me afterward. (laughs) Number three, this might raise the question of Paul's use of the terms master and bondservant or slave in this section. Is Paul speaking not only to people who are in a working environment, but also to slaves and their masters? Yes. Slavery was a major trade in the middle, ancient Middle East. Which means that this is a great thing that Paul is actually addressing them here. If he didn't, he would be missing out on instructing a large segment of the society. Remember we already said, this is everybody. He's talking to everybody. Is he supporting slavery here? By no means. By no means. He is neither supporting nor decrying it because that is not the scope of the message. Well, why isn't he sitting there talking about how bad it is? Because it's not the scope of what he's talking about. He's talking about our hearts and how we are to live to Christ in the situations that we find ourselves. And a lot of people found themselves in that situation. It's not the point. The point is how we live as to Christ, where we are. And I think this passage would have been music to the ears of those who were under slavery. 
If slave owners were unjustly treating their slaves, it is Paul's words here and his appeal to their Christian faith and allegiance to Christ that would turn those masters from their wicked treatment and relieve the unjust suffering of their slaves. So it is a beautiful thing that he addresses it here. It's not justification for slavery. It's telling those who treat others poorly and in a position of authority to stop it. Soapbox, done. With that said, let's now turn to see how we can live as to Christ in these positions of subordination and authority. How can we walk as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord in these roles? By the way, this is not two groups of people. There is a high likelihood that everyone in this room is occupying both of these roles, just in different contexts. For instance, the husband is in the position of authority in the marriage and as a parent, but frequently is in the position of subordination in the workplace and at church. The wife is in the position of subordination in her marriage, but exercises authority over her children and sometimes has a position of authority over others in the workplace. Many people are middle managers. I was talking to one earlier this week, which means they are at the same time an authority at work and in the position of subordination. So don't check out as we cover these roles because both apply to you in different aspects and contexts in your life. So let's address the role, the function, and the heart of the person in the position of subordination first. <clears throat> By a show of hands, how many of you in here are called to be in a position of subordination to some earthly authority? If you're not raising your hand, Everybody. Do you want me to look person by person? <laughs> we all occupy this position. A subordinate is a person under the charge of another. They exist in the role or position of being under the influence of an earthly authority. Their responsibilities... And these verses are this, to submit to, obey, and render service to those who are their authorities. That is what they are to do. This is a functional definition, but not a full definition. For remember, this passage is about the heart. A person in the position of subordination, according to Paul's definition, is much, much more than these three things. His definition in these verses includes what a person in the position of subordination is supposed to be and act like. He speaks to what the subordinate's character and behavior should be like if they are to render service as to Christ, in honor of Christ. So listen to these characteristics, the heart attitude 
and the manner in which they are to submit to their God-given authorities. As Paul speaks to children, he exhorts them to obey their parents and the Lord, for this is right. Stop right there. Paul here appeals to the motive and character of the child, the subordinate. He is telling them what is right so that they choose the right thing to do out of what desire? The Lord. In the Lord. See that? As an act of worship to the Lord, you should obey. Submit to the the authority of your parents in the way, in the manner that the Lord has instructed because this is the right thing to do in God's sight. He then follows up by quoting the fifth commandment, showing both the rightness of this command as well as the disposition of the heart in doing it. Honor your father and mother. The term honor includes, but is not limited to, obedience. It's much, much more. The concept of honor surpasses obedience and addresses not just the action, but the heart. They should have a heart of honor, a heart that desires to respect and esteem them because the position that God has placed the parents in their life. Not just the appearance of obedience, nor just the duty of obedience, but obedience from the heart that seeks to honor their parents. He is speaking to the disposition of the heart. The focus on disposition and manner continues as Paul pivots to bondservants. They too are to obey, same word. The manner and disposition in which they are to obey is, quote, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Hmm. That is not in a way that just looks obediently outwardly to those who are looking on, but with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. How easy is it to be outwardly compliant while maintaining inward rebellion and despising of your boss. Anybody ever do that? Come on. Ever do that with your parents? Outward obedience, inward rebellion. To merely give the appearance of service all the while hating serving and the one that you are serving? Hmm. Sounds a lot like what rebellious children do, doesn't it? When the last thing on their minds is to honor their parents. With all their heart, they want to dishonor them, and they begrudgingly obey out of the obligation or compulsion of it. Does this sound like an attitude that anyone who is in the position of subjection could have toward their authority? Paul says, don't do that. That's simple. But it's the heart, that word obedience within rebellion. Don't do that. Rather, obey in honor with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart, he says. He's again addressing the heart attitude. This isn't merely about the physical act of obedience, but about what is going on in our hearts 
our disposition, the character of the one obeying. Now, we can get the wrong impression with the phrase, with fear and trembling, can't we? Well, it sure does sound like Paul is saying that the bond servant should obey out of fear and trepidation of being punished by their master. This is a far, far, far cry from what Paul is saying here. Fear and trembling was a colloquialism. I know, big word. For, get this, honor, reverence, respect. Hmm. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul tells the Corinthians of Titus' affection for them as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. No, no, Titus, no, please don't, don't, no. <laughs> no, they're like, oh, Titus is coming. And they honored him and they revered him and they respected him because it was Titus. By the way, the Greek word for fear here appears two other times in this section. Hmm. 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Guess what? It's the same word. Verse 33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Same word. The instruction for children, bond servants and wives is the same. In other words, the instructions for all people in the position of subordination is the same. Everyone in the position of subordination, whenever you are in that position of subordination, obey your authorities out of honor and respect with a disposition of fear and trembling with sincerity of heart, with a genuineness of reverence and esteem for who they are. Yes, this is about the character of the subordinate, not about the authority, but about the disposition of me in my inward being. That's what this is about. We honor authorities like this. And when we do it, we honor Christ. When we respect and obey our God-given authorities, we do it as to Christ. When we do it for them, we do it unto him. It is an act of worship to Christ. And we reflect the relationship of the church to Christ, showing how the church is submitted to Christ by how we submit ourselves to our earthly authorities. An authority, let's, next is authorities. An authority is a person in charge of another. They possess the role or place of influence or power over another. Their responsibilities, according to these verses, include loving those under their charge as they do their own bodies, giving themselves up for them, nourishing and cherishing them, and rendering service to them. Sacrifice, nourish, and serve. Sacrifice, nourish, and serve. That is what you are to do when you are in the position of authority. 
Do you hear the character requirements implied in these responsibilities? Sacrifice, nourish, serve, write it down. Notice how all of these responsibilities are about caring and protecting, acting on behalf of and for the benefit of those under your charge. If you are in a position of authority and want to worship, honor, and serve Christ in that capacity, then you need to sacrifice for, nourish, and serve those under your charge. That is how you honor and worship Christ. There is no room for authoritarianism within these responsibilities and characteristics, are there? <clears throat> you see what I mean when I said that, that they one the one precludes the other? Manipulation and sacrifice are complete opposites. A true godly authority, one who sacrifices for, nourishes, and serves those under their care, cannot be an authoritarian cannot be a controller because they sacrifice and nourish and care and serve. To drive this home, Paul even gives two don'ts in this passage. Don't provoke to anger and don't threaten. In Colossians, he also says, don't be harsh. That's what people who abuse authority and fall and fail to fulfill their responsibilities do. So let's look at those first. Don't provoke those under your authority to anger. Don't, by your words or actions, lack, lack of words or inactions, incite those in your charge to become angry. There are a myriad of ways of inciting people to wrath, aren't there? We've all experienced it, haven't we? The most common is through the abuse of power or position, using your position as a means to your own ends at the expense of others who are under you, being controlling, dictatorial, and demanding, having unreasonable expectations of those under you, acting on your emotions, becoming angry at the drop of a hat, exploding at the least little transgression or inconvenience, constantly displaying disappointment, frustration, rage, or spite, being harsh. Any of these uh, ringing a bell? And then there's the other side of the coin. You can incite others to anger by abdicating your responsibilities. Hmm by being uncaring, unsympathetic, apathetic, or aloof, not providing care or guidance, instruction or discipline, not sacrificing for, nourishing, or serving those under your cares, under your care, avoiding your responsibilities, and then expecting them to pick up the slack. And then there's threatening, bullying, or intimidating. Constantly warning those under your care of the ramifications if they do not do what you want them to do. This doesn't even have to be vocalized, does it? You can do it in a look, can't you? Showing your disappointment. Using your position to manipulate others into doing what you want them to do by the threat of harm or injury, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. If those under your charge really fear you, as in 
they're frightened by you and by your threats and by your actions, then you are not honoring Christ and acting like he would act toward his church. In fact, it is the exact opposite of the way Jesus interacts with the church. Now compare this with the example that Paul gives of a godly authority in relation to their subordinate, Christ and the church. Bill talked a lot about this two weeks ago. And it continues here. How did Christ lead? How was he the head and is he the head of the church? The way Jesus led people and leads people is by sacrificing for them, nourishing them, and serving them. That is what he has done from the very beginning, isn't it? Christ came not to be served, but to serve. He said, whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. There's the serving thing. And to give his life, sacrifice, as a ransom for many. Hmm. Jesus is the example for all of us in positions of authority. The way we exercise authority is by acting toward those under our care, the way Jesus acted and acts toward us. I need to say that one again. The way we exercise authority is by acting toward those under our care, the way Jesus acted and acts towards us. Get a right picture of him. That picture David did this morning was beautiful. He is reclining with you. He is inviting you because he loves you. He loves you. And he is with you. Moment by moment by moment, he is with you. And he is serving you. And he is sacrificing for you. And he is nourishing you because he loves you. That is the picture. How do we exercise our authority as to Christ? By being like Christ. We nourish those in our care. Nourish actually appears twice in this passage too. We saw the one in wives. Husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives. It appears a second time. It does, where? 6-4. 6-4, where it says, fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up is nourish. Same word. Whoa, that's cool. It literally means nourishing parents. We are to nourish our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Husbands, we are to nourish our wives by washing them in the water of the word. You see how this works? Masters, do the same. Raise them up, nourish them, render service to them by showing them the ways of God. Everybody, do that to everybody. Not just teaching them, but actually living out the instruction and discipline of the Lord in your own life. 
showing mercy and kindness, gentleness and patience, modeling the love of the Lord to them by teaching them of the grace of God and the love of God and modeling the way that Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. That is why I said that this is not just nourishing them in this instruction, but by us nourishing them according to this very same instruction. We model the love of Christ to our subordinates by acting in the same way that Christ did and does to the church. And we do it so that God is glorified in the Lord as to Christ. So that Christ is honored and revered. We model for these things. We model Christ so that the world sees Christ, so that those who are subordinates and those who are authorities see Christ and see his glory. All of life is an act of worship. All of life is an act of worship. How we interact with others is an interaction with Christ. We must remember this in every relationship and every interaction. The way we stand firm is by living moment by moment, relationship by relationship, as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to Christ the Lord. Therefore, serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. May all glory and dominion be yours, O God. May our lives be living sacrifices to you. May we honor you, God, in the way we talk to each and every person around us, whether they're subordinate, whether they're authorities. May we live out Christ Show Christ to everyone. Help us to stand firm in that, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.